my broke was a choice. That's not true poverty. That's just, you got a job, you have some income, you have nice stuff, you got a cell phone. If you have one of these, bro, and a car payment, like, and no money, you are broke by choice. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we're excited to bring on Alex Felice from Broke as a Choice. He's going to go over all of his mindset, book recommendations, and, of course, his real estate background. But first, let's check in with the co-host, Cody. What were you up to this last weekend? Yeah, well, if people can tell, I've lost my voice a little bit, and that's product of me having a little bit too much fun in Miami. It was a blast, went down, and kind of reunited with some college friends. You know, the beach was obviously an awesome choice. It was literally, like, the variation in temperature is insane. It was, the highest was 83, which I was actually kind of happy about. I'm glad it wasn't, like, 97 or anything like that. But the lowest it got, even at night, like, the coldest points of the night, is 73. There's no variation at all there. I didn't really have to pack many different styles of clothes or anything. But yeah, man, just getting back into the swing of things, you know, catching up on sleep. And how about you? Yeah, this last weekend kind of kicked off this spree of where I'm going to be gone every weekend from now through July 23rd. <laughs> so, if, and if you're listening to this, like out of sync, you know, we're, we're in late May. So uh, yeah, we got about whatever that is, like eight weeks in a row that we're going to be out on the weekends. This last weekend, we were down at Leslie's family's beach house. They got some damage from the, the winter storm where a pipe busted, had a lot of water damage, got some mold. So they just decided instead of kind of patching things up, they're going to do a full remodel. So we were down there kind of cleaning things out, doing a big yard sale, getting things out of there and just spending some time down at the coast and then getting prepped up for our next big trip, which is to Big Bend that I'm excited about. So we'll report back on that next week. And then now before we jump into the episode, let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans. These can be 401ks. These can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So today on the show, it's been a guest that I wanted to head on for a long time. I've known the guy since FinCon of 2018. We've connected. I've been on his podcast before. This is Alex Felice. We mentioned at the beginning of the episode. One thing I really admire about this guy is he does not back down from being controversial. Like he lives and backs his decisions and what he says in social media, but he's a very headstrong guy. And he kind of talks about why he's taken that position in the episode. He talks a lot about his success mindset, getting up from failures. And he's a realist too. We end up talking a little bit about like crypto, the future of the economy, kind of how, you know, we've been in this bull market now for 12 plus years. And Alex is at least wary that that is not going to be how it's going to be forever. And 
I didn't know this before we interviewed him, but he said he's a risk averse guy. Like he's making these really calculated decisions, even though he's buying these huge real estate deals at this point. But he says like, I've crunched all the numbers. I've done my homework. I've been there before. I've failed. Like every single decision I make isn't like, you know, throwing all of my net worth at Dogecoin and hoping it blows up. Like everything that he does is a very calculated decision. Really enjoyed this episode. Justin, what do you think, man? Yeah, well, I was very excited to get Alex on the show because I've known Alex for a bit, but I've just recently kind of got to do some business with Alex. And what you mentioned with the the risk averseness, I could kind of tell through a little bit, which I respected through the, the dealings that we did. So I invested in part of his 50 plus unit deal in North Carolina. And, you know, he was just being very conservative with the numbers, which, again, I appreciate. Like he wasn't trying to be a snake oil salesman. He wasn't trying to promise everybody they were going to get 25 percent returns. He just wanted everybody to be like, he wanted to put it in a position where he could be comfortable that everybody was going to get their turn and then surprise him, you know, kind of under promise, over deliver. And I can also attest that Alex is a, a super helpful person. So if you reach out there like and show some actual interest and some due diligence, he's going to respond to you. He's going to help you out. And if you enjoyed this episode, want to check out the show notes, maybe go online and berate Alex a little bit because he does have a low self-esteem. <laughs> you can do so at thefyshow.com slash Alex Felice. That's Alex, F-E-L-I-C-E, thefyshow.com slash Alex Felice. Okay, well, high school, I was a train wreck, disaster, idiot, insecure, meek little kid with the same attitude, but none of the charm and no talent. So that didn't count. Joined the army, got a little better, didn't really count. And then it wasn't until I was about 31 before I pulled my head out of my ass, honestly. And it started, you know, it came from, it's so funny because it was a time just like now where you know, there's no bears in the market. Everybody's optimistic. Everybody's winning. Everybody's posting up returns. And, you know, it's uh, as Greenspan would say, irrational exuberance, where it's just like, it's unbelievable confidence and nobody ever remembers what it was like to be. Nobody's ever worried about protecting the downside. Well, then I got my, you know, life came along and smacked the ever living out of me. Lost the job that I was making six figures. And, you know, I was selling cars at the time, which is like a hard job, but you don't need that many talents for it. And so I went from a place where I just bought a house. I was feeling confident. I was, you know, I had a car, a cool car, a new house, fancy clothes. I was drinking way too much. You know, I was partying. I was like 27 and whatever. And so I was just kind of like living this life that a lot of people live. It was week to week or month to month. And it looked like I was successful and I had a lot of arrogance. But I realized I lost that job and it was like real quick. I was like, bro, I have no money in my savings and I have no like actual credentials to go out and get something to make money with. I had no side hustle. I didn't know anything about money. It was just, honestly, it's how most people live. But you don't really notice it until the bottom falls out below you. And then you're like, oh, I have nothing to fall back on. And so that's when I found personal finance. And it really created this, you know, deep, deep burning sense of personal responsibility. Because it was like, you know, I messed all this up and there's nobody to blame but myself. And that hit hard. And so then I went on this obsession, personal finance. It's like, let me get my money right. Pay off all my debts. Let me... um start saving a little bit of money. Let me learn how to invest. I got so committed. I went to college and got a, a bachelor's in finance because I was like, yo, I don't really want to do finance, but I want to learn it. I figure if I learn money, I'll fix the money problem. And then that turned into, hey, I finally had a little bit of cash. It was 2014 by then. The foreclosure boom was well, well in swing. You could buy a foreclosure for in my town for like 50 grand. Tried that, made a bunch of money. And then I was like, yo, this real estate thing is easy which I still to this day say all the time, mostly just to be obnoxious. I made a little bit of money in real estate. And then it's like, okay, bought my first rental, bought a second rental in 16, three of them in 17, two of them in 18. 
in 19, I bought a rental and a 24 unit apartment complex with some friends. In late December, excuse me, in 2020, I flipped a few houses. I quit my job, moved back to Fayetteville. I quit my job. I was living in Las Vegas. I quit my job, flipped a few houses, bought a 52 unit, $3.2 million syndication with a couple of friends. Well, like 30 friends. And, you know, a lot of stuff in between. I found books, like all these things. It just turned into a, that, that moment turned into a personal growth obsession for me. So let's dig into a few of those specific moments that you laid out because you gave us a big timeline there. If I we know, look I did into too much. no, no, you're you totally fine. <laughs> when we dig into that part where you're around 27, I think it was when you lost your job and you realized you didn't really have anything. I guess like how long was that? How long were you out of work? Like how bad did things get? How bad were things really before you started turning things around? So money causes lots of ancillary problems. People say. Money doesn't buy happiness, and it's 100% true. But if you don't have it, it causes all sorts of misery. You know, poverty causes misery. So what happened was, you know, I couldn't get a job. I ended up selling cars to this human being that was a literal tyrant, and he would only hire people that couldn't work other places, so he would abuse them, knowing that they didn't have any other options. And so many people in the world feel like they are being oppressed by their boss who is taking advantage of their situation where they felt st they feel stuck. They're like, I can't afford to quit. I don't have the time to go do something else and learn a new t skill. And I'm like going to work to this person or this situation that I absolutely loathe. And it's a very unbelievable demoralizing situation. That went on for 18 months, which was, it only served to fuel a fire within me because I was living, bro, I sold everything. I was living on like $600 a month. Like I was living on, I was living in, on couches and well, I take that back. I had my, I had my mortgage, but it was like 600 bucks a month. So I was living on that and like nothing else. I sold my car. I bought a $1,200 beater on Craigslist. And I did that for quite a while. I was thankful that I had the GI bill. So the GI bill was paying my college. So I was basically just living and that ended around 2014. So I did that. I did that for about two and a half years where I really just suffered under this, the thumb of this tyrant. And then I went and worked in banking, which is it that much better in many ways. Right. But it was, it was definitely a step up. But at the same time, I looked at, it, I was like, I don't want this job either. Right. I don't want to work with these people. So it takes a while. Like you go on these podcasts and you're like, yeah, I started from nothing. And now look where I am. People go, they're like, it seems so quick. And it's like, yeah, it took six years, seven years, somewhere in there, but it's, it's every day. Right. It's, that's a lot of days for me. That's not just, oh, one or two years. It's, it's 365 days a year that I think and grind this stuff to get out of it. So something we've actually talked a little bit about before, and I just want to set the framework for listeners here, is the difference between broke and poor. So you just talked about when you kind of hit rock bottom and you were broke. And I don't want people to get the wrong idea because I asked you for this distinction. You could say, oh, you know, if you're poor, it's your fault. And could you kind of talk about your ideology and your distinction between what broke and poor is? Yeah, so my website... I don't know if you remember this, but my website is brokeisachoice.com. Oh, I remember and, this. <laughs> and, 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 and I name it polarizing for a reason, for a very specific reason. And I want to start by saying I'm not, I'm not ignorant to the fact that poverty, true poverty exists and that it's not always a choice. It's very rarely a choice. But what happened was I was living a life that most Americans live, which is month to month, right? No savings or very little savings, say less than three grand, right? That's broke. You got a job, you could save. But your choices make you broke. That's a car payment. That's a cell phone payment. That's Netflix. That's Amazon, Disney, blah, 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 food, clothes. You're broke, bro, by your choice because of poor choices. I went to Afghanistan twice, right? They, they got no running water there because they just don't have the infrastructure there. So they never, ever, 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 ever take a shower in their whole lives, right? They're poor. 
That's poor. Ain't nobody in America poor like that. And so we have a lot of opportunity here and we waste it. I had a lot of opportunity and I wasted it. And so my broke was a choice. That's not true poverty. That's just, you got a job, you have some income, you have nice stuff, you got a cell phone. If you have one of these, bro, and a car payment, like, and no money, you are broke by choice. I'm sorry to say. So uh, we live in in a highly entitled culture where the vast majority of people could turn their financial situations around if they cared enough and they just don't. And it's not to say that I have no sympathy or empathy for those people. It's just like, that's not the way I talk. My The way I speak is polarizing on purpose and I'm okay with the fallout from that. And I don't mean to necessarily hurt anybody's feelings, but I do mean to approach the situation from a brash, let's rip the bandaid off right now and go. Because as I said before about the personal responsibility, if you understand that your poor financial situation, once you realize how much of it is your fault, then you can feel that a lot of fixing it is within your control. And so those go hand in hand. So let's talk a little bit about when you ripped that Band-Aid off. So if you went from a six-figure job where you're just actually going paycheck to paycheck, then to losing that job, selling cars, and only spending a few hundred dollars, like that's a huge lifestyle change. Was it literally just you flip the switch overnight? Like what kind of resources did you run into to like help you understand personal finance? Like just how did that transformation happen? Yeah, so I kind of... I had this burning, it's like a, when an overweight person gets sick of looking at the mirror themselves and they're like, yeah, I'm just going to fix this. And they go off and lose 200 pounds, right? It's kind of like that. We're like, I had been stressing about money for 30 years, maybe not 30, but you know, my adult life since I went on my own, right? The army doesn't teach you good financial practices because you have this mad stable income. So they're like, yo, just waste all of it. You get a guaranteed paycheck. I get sick of things. And when you're really, really angry about a situation and you're really fed up, then you can make some changes. If you're just sort of mad, or you, you know, you can just drink your, you can drink it away, or you can eat it away, or you can spend it away. But if you get really, really sick of something, you can make drastic changes. So I found a website by a friend of ours named JD Roth called Get Rich Slowly, because I was like, bro, I don't want to, I don't want to do a gimmick. I want to fix this money problem, and I don't necessarily have to be rich, and I'm not an entrepreneur. I just want to not have just enough and have a control over it so that it's not in control of me. And it's not stressing me out all the time. I don't need a lot. I just need to know that I'm, you know, as long as that net worth calculator is going up, I'm okay, even if it's slow. Because at least now I know I'm moving towards the good. So I found Get Rich Slowly and I was like, perfect for me because it's it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's the opposite. And then, you know, I read books like The Richest Man in Babylon, which is rudimentary and simple. And once you kind of get the principles, it seems like a book you don't need. But at the time it was so like, oh, save 20% of your income. Who knew? Spend less than you earn. Oh, I would have never thought of that. <laughs> they, they seem simple now, especially with the kind of deals that I do. But at the time, you know, you, you, I really needed those. I really needed somebody to kind of say it to me and just say, bro, you can fix this if you stop the nonsense. You know, you don't have to go out to drink ever. That's a luxury ever. You don't have to go out to eat ever. That's a luxury. If you have a car payment, people go, oh, I have to have a car payment because I don't want something unreliable. It's like, fine, but you're paying for it. That, that reliability you're buying has an incredible premium. So people in this country are unwilling to make sacrifice. And that's what I learned. It's like, if I can make sacrifice, I can get mad advantages. And you drive a crappy car, you drive a cool car. It's like, I never got laid from either one of them. So what, <laughs> who, who, who am I impressing here, you know? Sorry to keep harping on this difficult period in your life kind of before you discover personal finance. It. And we're definitely going to get to the good part in a little bit, but it's kind of, it's kind of interesting building out the full story. So I'm going to rip a direct quote from your site, and then I'm going to challenge you a bit because I think that it might be kind of untrue, but we'll see about it. 
So it says, after the army, I learned how to build a house with my uncle. I spent some time in car sales, went to college for finance, and sort of wasted a bunch of precious time. So we've already talked about all three of those different things. The going to college for finance, the working with your uncle, learning how to build a house, car sales, kind of what you do now. It's a lot of real estate, the building part, selling, kind of negotiating, getting offers, all all that stuff that comes with real estate, and personal finance or just finance, learning how numbers work. Why do you consider that whole period kind of a waste of time? You know... I learned how to sell, which is valuable. And I, to give you some credit, I underplay the value of that, right? But seven years in car sales, it's like you, what you really need, everybody (laughs) needs, everybody needs about two years in sales, two to three years in sales. And it's like, you, you got the gist, right? If you put a career into car sales, it's like, yeah, you, you could have done better. Not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but look, there's a lot of upside for those who will enact their ambitions. So I went and learned how to build some houses with my uncle. That was valuable in Arizona, but you know, I spent two years getting an associate's degree and then took a few years off before I ended up getting my bachelor's. I drank a lot, bro. I was an alcoholic or a 27-year-old party animal. I don't really know where the blend between the two is, but I was doing too much of it for sure. And I just look back and I, I look at guys like you, right? Cody, I think I got a couple of years on you. And I got, I got 25, 27-year-olds in my circle now that are crushing, that are they're almost where I'm at. And I got 10-year lead on them. And so I look back and I'm like, you know, okay, the world is not fair. And I'm okay with that. And the world is not, there's no cosmic justice and I'm okay with that. And if you get a late start in life, you lose those competitive years and I'm okay with that. And the fact that I partied like a maniac and spent a lot of time in Vegas and all these things, like I love those things, right? They make me who I am. That's where I have all my, that's why I have so much street smarts, right? So like, it's not super wasted, but when I look at guys who have spent way less time screwing around and way more time focused on core fundamentals that have high value, I consider that to be, let's maybe not say, maybe wasted is not the perfect word, but inefficient. All right. So let's move on a little bit then. Let's move a little forward into when things can start getting a little better. I'm curious, obviously now real estate is such a huge part of what you do. What made you gravitate towards that in the beginning? And like, were you also comfortable with regular investment stocks, things like that? Or was it you wanted something you could physically kind of walk up to? You're going to love this answer. Are you ready? Love it. Let's do it. Okay. So I said, I am inherently, I have a low conscientious personality, bad work ethic, right? I knew that. I know that about myself. I know it may not seem like it, but I know that about myself. I have bad work ethic. So I said, okay, Alex, by this time, what happened was um, I was saving some money. First time in my life, I had like 10 grand, right? And I was like, whew, you know, I don't want to waste it, but I know I got to invest it, right? I don't want to, I don't, it's not, I don't want to clutch my pearls here, right? So I got to, I got to invest this. Now, I don't really understand the stock market. And my goal was not equity. My goal was I need something to live off of. I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad years ago and didn't really know what to do with it, but that information was festering in my brain. So I knew in the back of my head somewhere, I knew I needed cash flow and I needed it to be passive. So those two things were planted in the back of my head from like 2004 when I read that book, but now it's like 2011. So I didn't do anything with this information. And so I said, okay, I need cash flow and I need passive. So I'm going through my, I got 10 grand or whatever. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I can buy equities. Okay, fine. But I can't spend equities. If I want to spend it, it means I got to sell it, which means it's not growing anymore. I didn't want a business. Like I didn't want a brick and mortar because of, bro, employees, uh-uh. That's the biggest expense in a business that there is. All this responsibility. I got to go to work every day. No, I didn't have anything to sell. And I didn't have that many talents or skills. So like I didn't have a service to provide, right? And so it's like, what do you do that's going to kick off cash flow? that you don't really need that much money to start. That's dead ass reliable because I didn't want to go off and do like an app 
And then, oh, it works for two years and then it collapses and now you're back to square one, right? I was like, bro, I'll go the long game. I wanted something tried and true. I wanted something that kicked off cash flow. I wanted something that was passive. I wanted something that I could use a little money with and rental real estate pops up. And like, you can use debt. It's cash flow positive. You can get equity. You get tax benefits. You don't need that much money. It's unbelievably tried and true, right? Like, I don't know if you know this, but there's no app that's going to make a house obsolete. Like they're sticking around. Houses are here to stay. So, and then I start going on the internet, I look around. It's like 2014, right? Like I, I, I went through the financial crisis, but I wasn't an investor. So I didn't, and I was still a little young. I wasn't paying attention to economics. Like I'm a mega macro econ nerd now. I'm criticizing the Federal Reserve every day on my Facebook. So it turns out that we're going through a foreclosure boom where you can go on my, you can go on the local MLS, which I did. And it's like, oh, there's houses all day long for 40 grand. So I, I started looking at some and it's like, you know, back then in 2014, I find a house in the market that was $54,000, 1,500-square-foot-had-a-third-of-an-acre-back-there-and-it-was-like-I-could-actually-move-right-in-it-with-an-FHA-loan. So I put like three grand down. I move in this house for $54,000. I couldn't believe it, right? I mean, it's not like a
I mean, I don't know what you think easy means, but <laughs> that's pretty easy to me. Now, look, there's obviously stress that comes along with it and risk, and it doesn't always go as, you know, you got to get through it, right? It's not always smooth and you go over budget and contractors are paying and da 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 There's, there's hit hurdles and hiccups, but it's like, name an easier business. I mean, fair point, but in that scenario, the property does have to appreciate. You do have to get renters in there and kind of know what you're doing a little bit. I guess I'm curious from from the beginning, like were there things now that you look back five, six, was it six years ago with the first property you bought? Something like that, yeah. Something like that. What are some things that you're like, I wish I knew this beforehand? If I had known that the market was going to go gangbusters like it did over the last three years, I would have done 10 times as much. I'm a risk averse investor by nature. So my biggest problem is that it was actually easier than I realized and I should have done way more. <laughs> you know, let's talk a little bit about this kind of housing boom that we're in. The mania. I'm in Austin, Texas, where things are just nuts. I mean, people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars over asking, like it's just a bidding war, all cash. You mentioned like, it's a little bit harder now than it used to be. I guess like it's hard for me to even imagine trying to get into some of these deals around here. Maybe it's just my geography, but like, how is it still, how are you still finding deals with all the craziness that's going on? Well, first off, I don't do that many deals, right? I'm a slow, meticulous, long game. Like so many people are trying to get rich in two years and I'm trying to get rich in 40. So like, I just don't care because I know like the, everybody's, they're doing this, like it's booming. So we got to go. And then also like, what are we going to do about the crash? And I'm like, you're going to go through five more crashes in your life. The goal is not to get ready for the next crash. The goal is to live in a way that lets you go through all crashes. So I'm not trying to make all my money right now. So I'm doing one or two flips at a time. I'm buying one multifamily a year of increasing size. And I spent a lot of time creating content, whether it's podcasts, YouTube now I'm going, trying to go hard on. I do a lot of blogging. I post on Facebook a lot and I, I have a, a kind of a knack for getting people's attention on Facebook. And so when you go on Facebook after, you know, accumulating some of this, call it press, and you say, hey, I'm looking for a deal, people want to be part of it. And social attention has tangible value. People who are, you know, if you're trying to get deals and nobody knows who you are, it's like, why would they bring you deals? So the fact that people know me beyond, like people know me, my social media presence is greater than my actual real estate track record, my, my experience. So I get deals that other higher volume flippers miss out on because I'm, for lack of a better term, more popular on the internet. <laughs> so, I mean, you have done single, multi, you just talked about flips, syndications is your most recent thing. I guess one of my questions is in terms of your real estate strategy, why the diversification and why the certain number? I know you just spit out some metrics there. What's the reason you go start a syndication? You know, it's a lot more paperwork. It's a lot more legal stuff you have to deal with. I just love to hear kind of your rationale and your kind of game plan for real estate over the next couple of years. So I, when I started, again, my goal was like, I have to get control of my life. So it was 10, I wanted to get 10 rentals in 10 years because I was not that ambitious as of a guy. I'm still don't consider myself that ambitious, but I was like, I'll get 10 rentals in 10 years. That's a safe play. That's a reliable play. And that's a good retirement play. That's safe and will work. Well, it turns out I got eight properties in three years. And I was like, ooh, guess what? I undercut myself. That's a good problem to have. I did way more than I thought I could do. Maybe I should start thinking about how much more I can do. So I started looking at multifamilies. I didn't want to go bite off more than I could chew. So I bought a million dollar property. I raised $280,000. The reason was to see if I could. The re Well, look, there's some specifics there, right? Money is more efficient at scale. So it doesn't make sense. It's just hard to do 
you want to get 100 units, it's like you got to go do 100 single family transactions. That's not efficient. So just go get a 100 unit property. So I wanted to get into the, the more efficient use of money. So then I started buying the 24 unit. And then the 52 unit was like just the next, hey, I think I can raise a million. We ended up raising 1.4 million or I ended up raising about 1.2 on my own. And the syndication complication is, it is more complicated, but it's it's not anything that I that you can't handle if you sit there and look at it. And I, and I found great partners that helped me out tremendously. So in the beginning, it was protect the downside, get 10 rentals. Then it was, ooh, now that that's done, maybe I can you know, chase some ambition, some actual chase some challenge. And that's kind of where I am with the multifamily now, where it's like, I'm chasing this challenge. It stresses me out. So I really only want to do about one a year because it's like 30, it's like 90 days and no sleep for me. And then the flipping, I wanted to quit my job so that I could live 100% of my terms. I just needed to make, basically make 50 or 60 grand a year on flips to kind of survive. So I, I didn't have that much pressure and that's going to grow over time, but that's kind of where I'm at now. The flips are an ongoing one at a time, just, you know, living off of it. And the multifamily is more of a kind of an abstract, what can you do if you try at life sort of thing where it's complicated. You got to, you got to take again, this, this responsibility thing where it's like, now I'm not just responsible for myself. Now I have responsibility for other people. And I love that actually, because it, it's a difficult and important responsibility. And it's one that I think lends itself to my, to my strengths because it's something I take very seriously. So I don't know how well thought out an answer that is, but that's kind of where I'm at. So I would like to dig a little bit into the syndication and the, the raising money and the partners that you brought in. And I hope you find this question hilarious coming from me, but like, how do you convince somebody that barely knows you to give you, you know, 30 to $100,000 to some guy on the internet to a property they'll never see? So everybody gets sold in different ways. People need to be approached in different ways and people want different things. And so this is the cool thing about raising money is it's not about what I want to do. It's about, I have to go get deals that you want to do. You know, I can approach people in different ways. I can reach out to somebody and say, hey, I, you know, we barely know each other, whatever, but I'm about to raise this deal. And you know what? I'm going to buy this deal. and I'm going to make money with or without you. So I don't care if you join it or not. Do you want to miss out? Is that how you feel? You feel like missing out on money? Sometimes people, you know, my, my website is a great filter. You know, brokersofchoice.com. We talked about how polarizing it is. If somebody gets to my website, they see what I'm doing. They get through that kind of polarizing language and the pink colors and all the nonsense. And they're like, oh, I still like this guy. And then they reach out and talk to me. I know that like my whole thing with social media, I'm not a reach everybody guy. I'm a, hey, find the people that are right for me guy. So when I talk to somebody that's like that Alex guy, like I like his style, then I know that I can just approach them straight up and be like, look, I want to buy this property. I know that I'm capable. I know that it will make money. And because not only do I, I do dabble in theatrics and polarizing language, but when you, if you sit down and have a conversation with me, it becomes real apparent that I know the nuance of what I'm doing. And I know the technical, the details of these deals very, very well. So if I can get somebody in front of me and I can, you know, I can find out what they want because that's really what sales is. It's, it's solving problems. So I say, Hey, look, you need a deal. You can't find a deal. I got a deal. I can run it. If you go to my website, you find that I'm unbelievably transparent. So I'm not, if I was a scam artist, I wouldn't have thousands of stuff written on books that nobody's ever going to read obscure books about philosophy on my website. Like there's plenty of cons out there and there's plenty of people that are, that are hustling. And I'm just not interested in either of those things. And it doesn't take you long to find out that I'm a real, a real human being. So I guess that's a kind of a culmination of like, people don't buy deals. They buy people, they invest in people. And so I put myself out there in a way that says, this is who I really am. Take it or leave it. I'm not for everybody and I'm okay with it. The people who are remaining 
they're easy to do deals with me because they're like, okay, this we're going to be fine. I kind of want to ask you, like, you're no stranger to pushing yourself to limits. Like whether it's, you're talking about, I'm just going to buy a bigger and bigger property each year. I know you just talked about reading. You're a voracious reader. You like expanding your knowledge. I know you're a huge workout guy. You like expanding the muscles and getting in the gym. You know, what kind of drives that? What kind of drives you reaching those outer limits? Because I honestly think that's such a differentiating factor from those who quote unquote, make it from those who don't is the people who are willing to dream big, willing to put in way more work than people who aren't. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. Like, like, okay. I love working out. It's not a drive. I love it. Right. Uh, real estate's fun. The challenge of it is fun. It's not, I'm not driven. It's just like, Ooh, that, let me go. I bet you I could do it. I bet you I could do it. And I bet you somebody else will underestimate me. Let's go. Let's do it. It doesn't feel like driven. That is not the way I would describe it inside. It doesn't feel like driven. It just feels like, in fact, it's not like, oh, I have to go hit these big goals. I have to do this with my life. It's more like, hey, look, you're alive. This is where you're at. The most pragmatically useful thing to to do is the next harder thing. Always. I don't want to do the same thing, like watch the same reruns, you know, or just sit there and watch. I've already sat there and watched TV all day. I, I did that once. I don't need to do that again. I want to do something new and, and exciting and challenging. And something about comfort zone is this like this little circle. And everywhere you've already been inside, everything you've already done is your comfort zone. And so it's like the more you try to do things that are outside of your comfort zone, the bigger it grows. And then that feeling of accomplishment to do something that you've never done before is perhaps the thing that feels greatest to me. And so I'm just a little, I'm an addict for, hey, let's try hard. Let's try hard. Let's, let's do something we've never done before in the face of, I don't think I can do it. Okay. So you asked me, or you mentioned about, you know, polarizing language. And you said, a lot of people probably don't like me. And I think a lot of people are going through this social media. We're all going through this new social media thing together and everybody's figuring it out. And there's this tendency to people please, right? Like, I don't want to say anything that would offend anybody. And it's like the propensity for you not to offend anybody means you're going to say almost nothing at all. And so the last few years, I realized, especially in 2016, we had this very polarizing election. We had the president that was basically a rejection of PR culture, right? I'm not going to go into politics. I just want to make a point about it. And so what I realized was my goal is not to get everybody. I don't want 100% of people to like me. I can't do anything with 100% of people. I can't sell them everything. And, and my language would be so vanilla and, and watered down that it, it wouldn't be me anyways. So then I looked at it and I said, well, do I go after my 50%, right? That's politics, right? I only need 51% of the vote. Do I go after my 51%? And I was like, mm, that's not really what seemed to win elections. What really seemed to win the 2016 election was pissing the other 49% off. And so I, t- so I kind of took a little piece of that and I said, you know, I will say what I think and it will be wrong for 50% of people and it'll be really right for 50%. And that way, for me, it's like the 50% of people who like me, I can be me around. And, that, and then it's like, we're all, in, we're all in a good place. We're all happy. We all know what to expect. Admittedly, I go too far often. Sometimes I say this on the internet and I regret it. But bro, I mean, life's full of little regrets. I, don't, I can't sit there and... and apologize for every little thing or offense I say. It's like, you say it, you say what you say, you move on, you know, you try to adjust and be better. And, and I'm not actively trying to piss people off so much as I'm saying what I think unapologetically. And I wish more people on the internet would do so, to be honest. So I know kind of at the start of some of this, Cody was asking 
where maybe you get that drive from and you said you don't know because you're doing the you're you're working out you're doing the deals you're got your website you're doing youtube now you're doing photography like there's all these things and my question is less you know how do you get that driven but more of because i know some people like this do you have any concerns about being able to slow down like you do you fear that you can't hit the brakes i feel like the laziest person around (laughs) that's how i feel okay first off i don't have kids so i don't know do you guys have kids no. Nope. Okay. Never mind then. You guys are a bunch, bunch of slackers too. Okay. I don't. Have, I don't have kids. So like that's. I'm 37. No kids. That's kind of a. It's a time advantage, I suppose. But you know, I think a lot of it is just like I don't have wasteful. Ha- I don't watch TV. So when I'm sitting at the uh, at the house and you know, it's like, what do you do with your spare time? It's like I'm learning how to do photography. I'm. A, I've been doing photography now for five years. I, I learned how to do photography. I'm learning how to do YouTube. I'm trying to create content and add value. I'm looking at deals or talking to people about deals or trying to help the next person by doing, you know, whether it's web chats through my website or trying to, again, like produce content or going to the gym or like, I just have ho- hobbies and habits that are productive. I just don't have that many waste. I like reading. Like I'm not reading to say I read X amount of books. I'm reading books that I enjoy for the sake of enjoying them. And then nobody else really cares. So I think some people get wrapped up and they get stuck in wasteful habits, like watching reruns on Netflix or, you know, nonsense. And that's all fine and good, but it's like, you're going to wake up and 20 years are going to go by and you're like, yo, I watched the office so many times and I love the office, but I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen already. So it's just, for me, it's, it's intellectually unstimulating to do the same thing. So it, it comes back to that. I, I don't spend time on on things that are, like I said, I feel like the laziest person around. So things that make me feel even lazier, I shy away from. You sure you're not spending all your time investing in crypto? I see you post <laughs> a lot about how, uh, <laughs> how how bullish you are on the future of crypto and how <laughs> you should throw all your life savings into it. Oh God, are we going to do this right now? Okay. Um, there are there are like there are like five crypto bears in the entire universe right now. Me, Warren Buffett, and like. You know, Peter Schiff, right? These are the only three bears on, on crypto. And to me, investing is is simple. B- Buffett said it best. While others are greedy, be fearful. And when, other, when others are fearful, be greedy. I got, I did well in real estate during 2014 when everybody was reeling about the economy and sell, telling me that real estate was unbelievably risky. And now people are saying, real estate's so good. The stock market's so good. Crypto's so good. And I'm like, if you take the assumption that, which I do, that 80% of the population are absolute brain dead morons, when they tell you to buy crypto, you run for the hills. So the more people that get bullish about crypto, the more apprehensive I am. This is not to say that, look, I don't know what's going to happen with Bitcoin. I'm okay to be wrong. I don't know what's going to happen with Ethereum. I know that there's value in both of those. I don't know what the actual value is. I know that the inflation from the Federal Reserve is fueling excess liquidity and people are easily putting it into these crypto markets. And I believe that they're grossly overinflated. We don't know what the actual worth is yet. I come off as a bear because I'm just trying to be prudent. But obviously, crypto is going to stick around. I honestly think that the the correct way that it's, I think the way it's really going to flesh out is the Federal Reserve is going to re- produce a crypto dollar. And that's what everybody's going to use is the crypto dollar and the altcoins. Bitcoin will become an altcoin, Ethereum. They will become non-investable securities, but they will become, they will become valuable technologies, but probably not mainstream currencies is my my best guess. And so the mania of it, just like you guys can have it. I mean- People go, I made so much money in the last two years. And I'm like, you're going to be alive for 80 though. So it's a long game. So something you were talking about before is that you're risk averse. You don't like 
making huge bets that you can't protect your downside risk. But one of the most reputable sources for quotes, Facebook, this is a a quote you posted a couple weeks ago. And you said, a person who has talent but is too afraid to try will lose to a person without talent but is willing to fail. I want to hear your thoughts on failure because I think, honestly, that is one of the biggest things that has kind of pushed me forward in my own entrepreneurial journey is not being afraid of failure, using that as a stepping stone. But as someone who's risk averse, how does that kind of play into your strategy? You know, we're in a really weird time because very few people have failed since 08. The market's been nothing but up. So people have their little small failures. People make mistakes. I'm an idiot. I make mistakes every day, right? I I make mistakes nonstop. People go, you know, tell me about failures. I'm like, you mean like giant ones? I've had life failures where I've really made, you know, critical mistakes. But the best thing you can do is as soon as you understand where you've made the mistake is stop wallowing, stop crying, get mad, fix the problem forever. I'm big on introspection and reflection. I'm bad on wallowing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't care for wallowing. So we're in a weird spot because I believe that there's, uh, I'm bearish on the market. I think there's something terrible coming and I'm trying to, to do the best I can to play in the game we're playing without, you know, setting myself up for who knows what, I don't really know, but I haven't had that many big failures. You know, I've made a lot of expensive mistakes and I've had bad days and missed deals and, you know, all these things, but I think I could probably do a lot more in my life if I did take more big risks and was willing to do the, you know, scared money, don't make no money. It's kind of like the the crypto thing where it's like, dude, I could have thrown 20 grand into crypto and just said, let it like, Hey, maybe it'll go. And there's a lot of people who will become millionaires because of that, but uh, because they took that risk. But I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to play this long game because I remember what it's like to be without. And I remember being overseas where people have really nothing. And it's like, you know, I don't even need to take that risk. You know, Nassim Taleb Taleb says, never take on risk of ruin. And so I'm not so big in my, you know, when I have a couple of million and I have a lot of excess cash, I'll take a lot more risky bets. But right now, in my opinion, I'm still small size. I'm still a new investor. I I figure I'm going to keep playing the game. I'm going to play it fairly aggressively when I have a better understanding of where kind of the market is. We, I've only been through this one cycle from 2014 to now. The cycle started in 09 at the bottom. So once we get to this next cycle and we kind of know, and I have a little bit more you know, wisdom about how the world really works and how human behavior really works, then I'll start playing that game a little bit more, I believe, aggressively with a little more wisdom. But I don't need to go fast now just because the market's up. There's no ego about it for me. So I do intend to play a lot more risky when I'm not so worried about my downside. And I have a little bit more wisdom because I'm playing the mega long game. So we've dug pretty in depth and covered, you know, all your backstory, but I'm kind of more curious about going forward. Now you talked about doing the one good size property, then the syndication, the 52 unit. I know you're looking at bigger things. Is there like a, a, do you have an end goal for how big you're willing to go with these deals? Nope. I think, I think end goals is it's arbitrary. What do I say? A thousand units? God forbid I get to a thousand. And then I'm like, well, now I'm going to go higher. So the number didn't matter. And if I say 10,000 and then I never get there, it's like, well, that was just a waste of time. So I go, hey, I'm going to do something bigger. We put an offer in on a 198 unit this week. We missed it, but we put the offer in. You know, we'll get one eventually. We're going to go bigger. And no, I don't want to set an end goal for that because that's not really my end goal. My end goal isn't like my goals are I, I want to produce a short film and I want to write a book about probably philosophy. Neither of those are capitalist endeavors. So for me, end goal is a little bit more of an abstract thing. The money 
fuels my lifestyle, which is travel and, you know, photography. You guys both see my, well, I've taken pictures of both you guys uh, <laughs> at events. But what I learned when I had no money, I was like, dude, money. I got to solve this money problem forever. I got to solve this money problem. When you're broke, all you think about your problems all coalesce as a money problem. But then when you have kind of, I don't want to say enough, but when you're like not stressing about money, then I start worrying about other things. Like, what does my life mean? What am I going to do with all my time? I got 60 years left to live. What am I going to do with that time besides just make money for the sake of it? So you, I've run into a much more difficult philosophical problem and a much more intriguing problem to me, which is, you know, what, do you, what are you going to do with your time? How are you going to spend it wisely? How are you going to give back and help as, you know, the next person? So those are more kind of my goals that I think about rather than just like the units. The units are going to come. The units are going to come. And I'm not in a race and I have no ego about it. So one a year at 200 units, life's going to be just fine financially. Promise. 100%. Well, dude, I think that's probably a good spot to stop here. And you are just a man of many trades. It seems like you are not scared to kind of dip your toe in, as you said, anything that might tickle your fancy, anything that someone challenges you to do. And people can check you out, of course, on Facebook, as we've mentioned a bunch of times today. But where, where do you want to direct people? Where can our listeners learn more about you, see what you're up to, get in contact? Facebook and Instagram is great. Uh, my Instagram is Alex Scott Felice. My website, brokersofchoice.com. 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 Say it again. Say it again. I think I'm going to update that thing. I've, been, I've had it about the same for three years. But if you want to know about like my deals, I put all my deals on in incredible transparency, the flips, the multifamily, and the single families. I don't sell anything on that website. There's no click funnels. So it's just free information about what I do. It's not really an education platform. It's more of a personal blog. I have a lot of content about books on there. So you can go there and check me out. I'm happy to communicate with anybody who wants, who I can help. So before I let you go, Alex, uh, I know we don't do the wild card question anymore, but I got to ask you, since you're such a prolific reader, if there's quickly like one book recommendation out there for people, it could be philosophy, it doesn't have to be finance. I know you said you got some recommendations on the website, but like if you could give people one book to read. I hate this question because let me start. The real answer is, dude, one book is not the answer. Becoming a reader is the answer. So if you can grip it, it's a tough one. Nassim Taleb wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, Changed My Life Forever. It's a tough, it's a, it's a complicated book about philosophy and economics, but it is probably the best thing I've ever read in my life. And if you want self-help that isn't cheap self-help written by some dude who's trying to make money off you, a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, Thus spoke Zarathustra in 1865, and it is prolific and brilliant. Awesome. Well, thank you for dropping that knowledge on us, and thank you for this whole episode. Tons of knowledge being dropped. We look forward to following you on the Brokers of Choice, all the deals you do, all the transparency, and I look forward to maybe even investing in your next deal. So appreciate coming on the show. Thank you both so much. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.